All right, good morning. Um, the discipline discussion, uh, the disciplines that I wanted to go over this morning was uh, discipline number two, is discipline number two, uh, the home. Uh, and obviously this assumes that you are actually performing discipline number one, which is shepherding our hearts. That's right. And shepherding the home is not a one-time event. It's not something that you even necessarily do one time on one day. Um, it's something that's just the fragrance of our homes. It's something that just happens. Um, there's purposeful aspects to it, and there's also opportunistic aspects to it. And Deuteronomy 6 makes it pretty comprehensive. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So discipline number one. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. That's like all the time. Uh, so you don't get uh, any time off from that. Um, it's a, it's, it's a full-time job. And it can look very different uh, depending on what your family looks like. Uh, if you're single, if you're empty nester, you know, it can, it can look different uh, depending on who's in your home, how many in your home, what season of life you're in. And it's not a one-size-fit-all kind of thing. I mean, if you're single and you have roommates, then you should be purposefully interacting around God's word and asking good questions, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, admonishing one another with God's word. Uh, if, if it's just you and your spouse, uh, maybe it would look like you guys pray together. You, you're on the same reading plan, perhaps, or and discussing God's word. Again, asking good questions, encouraging, exhorting, and admonishing one another with God's word. However, this morning I kind of wanted to <coughs> focus on what that might look like with children in the home. Uh, and a part of what that looks like would be a time specifically around God's word with the different members of our home, asking good questions, encouraging, exhorting, and admonishing one another with God's word. Uh, and specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, for the remainder of this time, I kind of want to focus on a family devotional uh, and what what we call in our house Bible time. Um, and this, this is just a purposeful time uh, getting all of our kids together with my with with Sarah and we get together and we spend time specifically around God's word with me leading it uh, and walking us through a verse or a passage or something again you know this this kind of time uh, can look a lot of different ways and it can and should change depending on your season of life and the ages of your kids we've uh, and and this is just going to be you know kind of what we've done as a family this this is not the only way to do it, far from that. Uh, it is not the template for how to do it. Um, this is simply how we've done it and what has worked well for our family. And your guys' families are different, and so it would look different. Um, and uh, as we've done it, you know, one of the things when my kids were young, uh, you know, somebody shared with me how they did their devotional. It's like, oh, okay, and I tried to implement that exactly the way they did it. And that really didn't work well for my family. And it was discouraging. Um, and so, you know, just the 
the encouragement that this can just look very different depending on what your season of life is and, you know, picking uh, what works for you guys. Um, Originally, you know, uh, what worked well for my family when they were youngest was we we had a a devotional or a Bible time uh, in in the mornings around breakfast. That was pretty consistent, something we could maintain. Uh, Gabby was in a high chair, um, and Isaiah could interact. And so, you know, there, there's a... Not everybody is, is interactive, because um, there, there's multiple ages going on there. And uh, that has changed over the years. Uh, we, when that was no longer working as well, we switched over to doing it at dinner time. We would consistently be able to have dinner together, and we would do it following dinner. Um, and now uh, the seasonal life that we're in, that definitely doesn't work anymore. Uh, with three kids in various sports and activities, it's like that doesn't work anymore. Um, and so what we do now is we do it first thing when everybody wakes up. And we actually have the kids wake up about 6.30 every morning, and uh, or most days, and they're in our room together, and that's when we spend our time going through God's word. Um. And so again, you know, as seasons of life change, these things can change, and they and they should, uh, so that we can, as men, be leading our families, leading our homes in this way. And what we've done in that Bible time uh, is we would, what we have done is we've walked verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and over the years we've gone through Mark, Joshua, Judges, uh, John, Acts, and we're currently in Proverbs. And with kids, uh, when, when they were youngest, we focused primarily on narrative. What, what's narrative? Story. Stories. Yeah, because young kids, they love stories. They, they can be really engaged with stories, right? And so we focused primarily on narrative uh, books, chapters. That's why we focused with the Gospel of Mark, because of the Gospels, that's like the most fast-paced narrative, uh, just kind of um, engaging in that that way, so because the little kids have little attention spans, and so that was something we could do um, that kept their attention. And did it keep all the kids' attentions? No. When you have one in a high chair and one who is four, that you know you're not going to accomplish that. Um, but over years, you're setting a precedent. You're setting a foundation. You're building a foundation. Um, and so that's what we did when the kids were youngest. And now that the kids are older, we're walking through proverbs, and you know we've laid a foundation of why we do this, what what this actually is. This is the word of God. And we submit our lives to it. It's authoritative. It has power. And, and they've been hearing that for years and for all of their lives. Um, and now we're in Proverbs where there is not, you know, there's much wisdom, obviously, in Proverbs. Christ does not come out of the pages as Proverbs, but Christ has been a foundation of everything else we've done. And now we get to, to work through Proverbs with all the, the grand themes of wisdom and foolishness and all those things. And, uh, and we get to draw out those and, and how those apply. Yeah. So prior to your daily Bible time with yeah. family, mm-hmm. do you actively prepare for that? Or do you just read together as a family? Or do you like, you know... No, that's a great question, and I was about ready to just uh, explain kind of how that goes. It's like, this is not something I spend a week preparing for for each each time. It's something that, that's, because that wouldn't be sustainable, 
right? That would be a lot of effort. Typically, what I do is I sit down, I keep track of where I left off, uh, you know, what verse I left off on, and then I, I look ahead and I read the next verse or verses, kind of figuring out what kind of chunk I want to do. And this is while the kids are actually coming in. And, and I read through that. And, and then as a family, we, we're like, okay, what kind of observations can we observe? You know, in Proverbs, it's like, what, what, what's going on right there? What can we observe? Well, it uses like. It's a simile. Okay, that means there's a comparison. What kind of compare, what is, what's being compared? And, and then we can just kind of uh, make those observations together. So that's kind of what we're doing now with Proverbs. With, uh, when the kids were younger, uh, we would walk you know, through a, a narrative part. And it's like, okay, what, what was going on? Who were the actors? What was the action? What was being done? Why was it being done? And then have some interaction over that. Um, so it wasn't something that I was preparing a lot for. It's okay to not have studied it in depth. And, and it's okay to not have all the answers. Uh, Isaiah would attest, it's like sometimes, a lot of times they ask me questions, it's like, well, I don't really know, I haven't studied that. Um, and so the, you just, there's a lot of different uh, interactions that can happen over God's word. And we don't want to speak to where we don't know something. And and so it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah, sure. And, and what... What he was doing there, what the, what do we observe? What do we like? Those are you're teaching your kids how to study the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. And, and it doesn't take a lot of preparation. Yeah, that doesn't take a lot of preparation. That's something that you can do like in the moment. Um, but we don't want to just leave it with the observations we make. Right. We want to like, okay, now what? What's the follow-on question? You know, different passages. What What does this say about God? What 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 attributes are drawn out here? What, uh, what, what does this say about man? Um, what is, what's application? How can we apply this in our own lives? Uh, and, and it's been neat to, to see, um, the fruit of all of that. And, and it's, it, like I said, it's not a lot of effort. I mean, the, the effort on my part is carving out a time and actually spending it doing that purposefully and trying to be consistent in that. Uh, the, the, and, and that's always a, a blessed time. It's fruitful time. The And like I said, even when the kids were youngest, um, you know, Gabby does, you know, we were talking, you know, over the last week or so, a few weeks, um, and she was, she, she doesn't remember us first doing it, but she doesn't remember a time that we never did it. Um, and and so the, it over time, it, it's not a sprint. It's not a one-time event. It's something you just becomes the the aroma of your home um yeah so kind of in conclusion you know this is something you know with with kids that we want to be doing we need to be as men we have to actually lead this is not something that is just going to happen we have we have to be purposeful uh and that burden is on us to shepherd our homes uh shepherds are the ones leading right and, and we have to be shepherding our home, and we're doing it with the Word of God. And like I said, you know, th- this was just a, you know, kind of narrowing it down into, you know, a, a Bible time, uh, a devotional. Um, and this is what's worked for us. I know other men who have done things very differently. Um, and like I said, it's not a one-size-fits-all, but it's something that we need to be doing. And, uh, and by God's grace, uh, over time... 
that they start to, you know, they're not, they don't start out saved, right? They are sinners. Um, but by doing this, we get to inform them and give them a biblical view of the world. Uh, one that's foundation is set by scripture. And Lord willing, God would be pleased to use that to save them. Um, there have been many instances where God does exactly that. So, Oh, and if you have any questions about what that looks like, ask me, Matt, any of the elders, any, any guys that are in a season or have passed through a season uh, that look like they've done it well, talk to them. It's like, what, what do you do when, when this happens? Or, or you just engage. That's one of the reasons why God brings all these different members uh, into one body. Um, so let's make use of that. That's helpful. I, um, I know as my kids have gotten older, Eric has been a sounding board for me on different things I've done um, devotionally with our kids. He's usually the good example uh, of how to do that well. So, thanks, Eric. Um, let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll see if I can do this lesson faster than I did two weeks ago. <laughs> so, Lord God, thank you for this great day. Lord, thank you for waking us up this morning and bringing us here together. Lord, thank you for hearts that desire to learn about you and learn, want to des to just serve you better, want to make you a priority in all of our lives. Lord, thank you for the men that have come before us that have laid the groundwork for this ministry. Lord, help us to be able to represent them well, Lord, and help us most importantly represent you well and change our hearts so we can lead our homes well. Lord, in your name, amen. So this is our first lesson on Discipline 3, the ministry. When you think of the ministry, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Kids ministry. Kids ministry. Yeah, in this church, definitely. What else? Evangelism. Evangelism. That's good. Discipleship. The entire Christian life. Yeah. Our involvement with others. That's good. That's it. All right. Um, those are all really good things. Um, I know I, being involved in front lines, a lot of times I think about people getting integrated into the church and just kind of to parallel what Matt said, just helping people have lives alongside of others. Um, that comes out of small groups, that comes out of almost all of the ministries in the church. Um, for me, I don't think about evangelism as much as ministry. Uh, so as I was preparing this lesson, this lesson is almost entirely centered around evangelism. Um, when we look at Paul's gospel ministry, we're looking at what Paul did to bring the gospel all around the world. There weren't churches. Like, he didn't go into a church and say, okay, you guys are doing a lot of things really well, but your NGM really needs to be shored up here, here, and here. Um, that didn't happen yet. Uh, he didn't go into churches and try to figure out how to start a discipleship ministry. He went into communities that hated God and brought them the gospel. Um, and so that's what I want to look at today. I'm going to look at maybe my favorite section of scripture but I probably will say that three or four times by the end of the time. Last time we got together, we looked at 40 passages. This time we're getting together and looking at one. 
Um, so we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter one and two. So go ahead and turn there. first oh yeah see it's definitely a section of scripture i've studied um i'm going to read it first and then give you guys kind of a roadmap about what we're going to be going through this morning and then we're going to do our best to get this done in about an hour a little background here uh paul is halfway through his second missionary journey he's started in present-day Turkey and is strengthening the churches that he established in his first journey. And you see that in Acts 15. Um, he traveled to Philippi, preached the gospel, and those were the first converts in Macedonia. And that's uh, Acts 16.14. Then he's persecuted and he left quickly and ran down the coast for Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, it talks a little bit about what... Um, happened in Thessalonica. It says there that he spent three Sabbaths there. Um, there was some communication runs that happened during that time that took multiple days. So there's a good chance that he was there a little bit longer than that. I think a lot of people assume it was three Sabbaths. It, it probably could have been as much as six weeks that he was there. Either way, he was not in Thessalonica for very long. So he's talking to people in the book of Thessalonians uh, who are very young in the faith. I mean, think about your first six weeks in the faith. Um, they're, they're very young in the faith. Uh, so the thrust of his message was Christ was the Messiah. When we talk about things that we're about to talk about here, he, um, he was persecuted very quickly and driven away very quickly. And he talks about the type of man he was among them amidst this persecution. And so these guys had a short window to observe a man of God being a man of God. And so we want to look at that. Um, the Jews were hostile there. They stirred up the crowd against him, and he fled from there to Berea. And so he was not there long. It did not take long for the gospel to drive him away and for the gospel to offend and drive people against him. And so that's what we want to want to observe is that that short window of, of three to six weeks of ministry that Paul had in Thessalonica. So let's read together. We're going to read First uh, Thessalonians one verses two, and we're going to go through two twelve. Uh, so read it with me as I read. We, Paul and his traveling companions, uh, give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, not, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond of an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we are, we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I'm going to go through what would probably be six or seven sermons um, if I were preaching this passage. And so we're not going to break this passage down. We're not going to go into incredible detail. We are going to make 11 observations from this passage about um, what gospel ministry looked like for Paul in Thessalonica. So here's our roadmap. Uh, you guys have the handout, hopefully. I didn't break this up in the handout this way. But the first five observations relate to the fruit of Paul's ministry. And so we're going to look at the gospel ministry as it relates to the fruit. Um, and then the next six are Paul's character in his gospel ministry. And so that's where I'd hope to, I hope to spend most of our time. Um, and at the end, I want to peek a little bit at D5 and the deacon qualifications and talk and start introducing those um, because those are things that I think we all should strive for so that we can be men that have a strong uh, gospel message that is paralleled with a life that doesn't destroy our gospel message. Um, and so we'll talk about that a little bit in a bit. So let's just jump in. So gospel ministry, number one, reveals God's electing love. Um, this comes from really the first four verses there, two through five. And so he says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, labor and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and the Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come in word only, but also in power, 
in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Um, Verse 3 tells us that Paul's great thanks to God for the Thessalonians and his thankfulness has three dimensions. In verse 2, it has the form of his thankfulness, which is making mention of you in our prayers. We want to be thankful for people around us. We need to be praying. We need to not just say we're praying for people. We need to be praying for people. Um, The evidence motivating his thankfulness was their work of faith, their labor of love, love, and their steadfastness of hope. These were people that were changed by God, and their life showed that. And that was what he was thankful for. Uh, He wasn't thankful for a lot of things that we could be thankful for. He was thankful for God's transformation of their hearts, and that showing itself in their interaction with each other and with the gospel. Um, And then he says the cause of his thankfulness is that God changed their hearts, knowing that he chose them. So we see at the end of verse 4 that Paul knows of God's electing love towards the Christians in Thessalonica. But how does he know this? If we keep reading, we find the answer. And it's all in that word for. In verse 5, he says, For the gospel did not come to you in word only. Paul knows God's choice of them because of how the gospel came to them. It came to them in three ways. In power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Normally, and it, it actually took me a minute to get here reading it, you assume that the power, the Holy Spirit, and the full conviction is actually describing the gospel. But if you, if you sit in this passage for a little bit, you'll recognize that this isn't describing the gospel. This is describing the way the gospel came to them. And more importantly, it's describing the men. The men brought the gospel in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. If you look at the just as, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You see that. Um, it is we, Paul and his traveling companions, who were in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And because the gospel was spoken by this kind of man, God, Paul was able to know God's choice of him. Consider the, the other side of that coin. What if the gospel message relied on some socially or culturally relevant message? That's not the means that God usually chooses for his electing choice. Um, and so this is a beautiful marriage of God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility with the gospel. God is pleased to reveal his electing love when saints full of the Holy Spirit, convinced of the power of the gospel, speak a biblical gospel message. So if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider this. Am I a man who is in step with the Spirit as I undertake this ministry? Am I confident in the gospel's power to change? Which leads us to the next, um, the next observation. Which gospel ministry results in fearless, joyful, exemplary imitators? So the imitators are the people in Thessalonica. And looking at verse 6 and 7, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
So as we talked about what Acts 17 says, can you imagine in the first six weeks of becoming a Christian, getting to the point where the man that led you to Christ was driven out of your town because of opposition to the gospel? Um, How joyful would you be? And yet, he said you became imitators, and amongst much tribulation you had the joy of the Lord. Um, This is written six weeks after conversion, and they became imitators. They suffered in much the same way Paul suffered in Philippi. They hit an unfriendly mob. There were false charges raised against them. And the gospel message was an offensive message, and people drove it away. Um, And we know this. We should expect this. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. We should expect the kind of opposition that um, they got, and and yet I, I don't know that I have gotten that kind of opposition. And it makes me wonder, is my gospel message right? Am I bringing the true gospel or am I softening it? Um, there's also a joy that comes from knowing the true gospel message. And these men, the or the people in Thessalonica, <coughs> had that joy. Uh, and as we are growing in our love for God, we should be growing in our joy in the Spirit. Uh, this doesn't mean that we won't have down times during trials and difficulties. Trials and difficulties are hard. Um, but if we rest in where the joy of the Spirit is, we will recognize that this is exactly where God wants us. Um, yeah, so the hard question is, have you ever really felt persecution for the gospel? And I know we live in a time, and I know we live in a country, where there isn't a lot of persecution. Um, we are very blessed. Even in this time, there are other countries where you could be much more persecuted for the gospel than we are here. And I think that gives us a bad habit of being very shy about things. Because we don't even really recognize what it means to take a stand for the gospel. And these people took a stand for the gospel in the first month or two of their time of salvation and were heavily persecuted for it, and it didn't help have them waver. So the third point, gospel ministry is multiplied quickly by new believers. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. These are brand new Christians, and the gospel sounded forth. Um, when you, if, if you've ever interacted with someone who just became a Christian, what's your first impulse? Uh, mine is sometimes to like make sure that they have a much more solid ground biblically before you let them out the door. Like I'm afraid of things they're going to say. Because I'm like, oh, he didn't get that right. Um, But if they get the gospel right, there's no one better to be preaching to the lost. Because they are in the midst of the biggest life transformation in their lives. And they're in the midst of non-believers every day. 
non-believers, mo- most of their friends are not Christians. Most of our friends are Christians. Um, and so young Christians are the best gospelizers, which I know is a word that Scott coined that I, every time he says I'm like, that's not a word. Um, and then I went and did it. <laughs> but most young Christians are awesome at bringing the gospel because they're so excited about what God just did in their hearts. And we need to be helping those people run with the gospel to non-believers. And there, there's more gospel opportunities for them than there, than there are for me. Um, I, as Spencer's for 15 years, I've worked with the same people for 15 years. I've preached the gospel to them, and, and the people that have been changed by it are likely changed by it. Like, there's, not, there's a lot of people I preach the gospel to that have such a strong opposition to the gospel. I mean, God can do his work, but... Um, there needs to be a fresh ground to bring the gospel to. Can you imagine being in a situation where you preach the gospel to people around you to a point where Paul says, yeah, I didn't have any need to say anything. You said it all. Um, That's a lot of sharing the gospel to people around you. Paul's entire life was around taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, First the Jews, then then the Gentiles. And he said, we had no need to say anything. Um, These these people were on fire for the gospel, brought the gospel to those around them, and quickly interacted with people. So if we notice two things, one is that it silenced Paul, and the other is that it went everywhere. They didn't pick and choose where they were going to preach the gospel. They didn't say, okay, well, I know this guy's ready to hear the gospel, but this guy isn't, so I'm going to go to this guy. They just preached the gospel with their lives. So, a couple of questions to ask to see if you're being used by the Lord this way is, am I aiming for the kind of new belief that is quick to share the gospel with others? Am I interacting with people to give them a foundation of theology, or am I interacting with people to help them trans- change their life and serve God? Um, and that, that's not always opposed to each other, but I know in my, my reflex is to oppose those. Um, and, and there is an amount of theology someone needs to know to be able to turn his life over to God, but it's probably not as much as my impulses to give them. Um, And so we need to give them enough theology so they understand their sin, so they understand their need for a Savior, so they understand who that Savior is, and so they understand what it means to give their life to that Savior. They don't need to know a whole lot less, or a whole lot more than that. Um, And so we need to be sharing the gospel that way, and that is offensive to the lost and is transforming to those whom he's chosen. And then the next question is, am I allowing a new believer to share their beliefs with others? Or am I a stumbling block to that new believer? Boy, I hope I'm not. The next area of gospel ministry is in 1.9. It says, gospel ministry labors for nothing short of repentance. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols. 
The reputation of the Thessalonians was spreading rapidly throughout the entire Mediterranean region. That's the gospel impact. And the testimony was all about two things. The manner in which Paul was received when he brought the gospel to them, and how the Thessalonians repented from their sins. Notice that Paul wasn't simply content to be welcomed in peace by the Thessalonians. Biblical gospel ministry pursues repentance, a turning away from sin towards the gospel. This isn't a box checking, yes, I've given a profession of faith and now I move on. Um, This is interacting with people around the gospel in a way that causes them to see their sin and hate it and want to run from it. Would we be content if we raised our kids to have a great relationship with us and a terrible relationship with our Savior? As we, the, the most fertile ground that parents in this room have is their children. And as we interact with them with the gospel, what is our end in that? Do we want them to understand how offensive their lives are and how they need to repent? Absolutely. Are we doing that? Uh, A lot of times. Sometimes. Sometimes I just love my kids and want to be with them. Um, We need to help them understand that they need a Savior. We need to help the non-believers in our lives understand that they need a Savior. If we have are single and have roommates that aren't believers, what a great opportunity to show show them um, what what a life that loves the Savior looks like. So if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider this question. Does my message to others have, as one of its foundations, faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin? The fifth area for gospel ministry, their observation, is that it results in a desire for God above all else. And we see that just as we keep moving through, the next verse and a half says, How you turned from, to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God. Notice the two characteristics of their repentance. Serving a living and true God and waiting for Jesus. A life of the converted Christian aims for these two things, serving a living God and waiting for Jesus. Notice that the aim is not a better work situation. It's not a better marriage situation. It's not your best life now. Um, but do we, don't we still soften it sometimes? Don't we still present the gospel sometimes as, man, your life's really hard. You need, you need my Savior. Um, and, and their life might be really hard, and they really do need your Savior. And they need your Savior so that they can have um, a life serving a living God, and they can wait for Jesus, because the true change is after this life. Um, the true joy that comes from serving God comes after this life because then we're in the presence of our Savior. How great will that be? And that waiting for Jesus and longing for Jesus' return 
Um, I don't think, I think I let things in this world give me more joy than they should instead of just sitting there waiting for the true joy that's going to come when Jesus returns. Um, And so we want to prize obedience to the Father and we want to long for Jesus' return. So if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider these questions. Does my message regularly aim for believers who look forward to Christ's return to his people? If we're an NGM, we're probably interacting with non-believers when we're teaching those classes or when we're taking care of the two-year-olds or whatever. Um, We have an opportunity to give non-believers a message of a Savior that's coming that will make all of this better. Do you remind yourselves of the realities of the next age? I think I told you guys the story a while ago when Jenna and I took a break from small groups when um, Eden was born. <clears throat> and then Shag talked me into coming to his group. Um, and that was a life-changing conversation, or maybe seven, that Shag had to do to get me to come to his group. Um, the first time I went to his group, a guy shared in core questions that he just didn't long for heaven enough. And he recognized in his life, his area of sin was a lack of longing for heaven. And and I remember vividly where we were sitting in Jack's living room at the time, where he was sitting in reference to me, who he was, how he said it, and he was heartbroken that he wasn't longing for heaven. And I remember thinking, man, I'm just worried about this baby that doesn't sleep through the night and my anger towards wanting a full night's sleep. And this guy's longing for heaven is his area of sin. Um... That was the best reminder in my life that I need to be in small groups regularly because that's how we can help encourage each other. There are people in that group that will will have a perspective on the gospel life that you just won't have, and it will cut you to the heart of where your life is at. And that was what that guy did for me. Um, And I, I am eternally grateful to him because it helped me just gain a perspective outside of this world towards what I'm really aiming at. The next question, do you know where even to go into your Bible to read about these truths, about with the Savior coming home? Like, how strong is your eschatology? How strong is your end-times theology? Um, In the book of Thessalonians, there's a lot of that. So he's teaching Christians who are three to six weeks old in their faith about end times theology. And a lot of times that's stuff that we we try to save for like the top shelf. Um, He didn't save it for the top shelf. In fact, in in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm not going to go there because we'll never get through this if I go defer from my notes. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, encourage each other with these words. And he just talked about the rapture. Um, This type of theology is not top shelf. This is what we need to be able to encourage each other with. Um, So those are, that's the first section of this lesson. Um, That's the fruit of Paul's ministry. And now I want to look at and spend a lot of time, I don't know if I've spent a lot of time already, I think I'm in line, um, with the character of Paul. Um, We need to look at our character and our lives and make sure that they validate the message we're preaching 
by having the character that we see here. And so the next six points are Paul's character. So character like Paul's does not lose courage in the face of opposition. So looking at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. The fact that Paul faced opposition did not mean that something was wrong with his message. In fact, it validated it. Um, he suffered for the gospel in Asia before he ever reached Macedonia, and he would continue to be persecuted throughout his third missionary journey in his journey to Rome, as you guys probably remember how Acts closes. Um, what would be your heart if you hit the opposition that Paul hit in Philippi? I would probably be like, oh, sweet, I'm here in Thessalonica. I'm just going to take a couple of week break. I need to recover from what just happened to me. And he didn't slow down. He didn't let up. And he hit the same opposition in Thessalonica that he hit in Philippi. That takes courage. That takes courage that I don't think anyone in this room has done. Um, I have not been driven out of a city and imprisoned for my faith and then followed it with, let me go to another city that hates God and try to do the same thing. Um, if you've done that, I'd love to hear the story. Uh, you probably don't have time, but during discussion groups, come find me. Um, I want to hear it. Um, and so opposition is normal if we're preaching a true gospel. Matthew 10.22 says, You will be hated all. You will be hated by all because of my name. And instead, Paul pressed on with courage. Acts 20.20 20 says, I did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable, solemnly testifying of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was consistently faithful to the gospel regardless of how he was treated. And we actually are living in an age where hostility towards the gospel is increasing. I, when, when my kids were baptized, one of the conversations, or a couple of my kids were baptized, one of the conversations we had with them is, is we generally videotape these baptisms and then put them online. Um, at some point in your life, that will likely come back to bite you. Are you willing to go be baptized today and know that that's going to linger over your head in this world? And I think that was a good litmus test to say, are you really saved? Do you really want to stand up for the gospel at this point, knowing that could dictate your entire life? Um, and we talk about that with Sagebrush. Like, I, you Google my name, you see Grace Bible Church pretty quick. Um, the coffee industry, I don't know if you guys have noticed, it's kind of a bunch of, like, hippies. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not full of Christians. <laughs> um, it could, at any point, slander our business. Um, there is opposition. Maybe not imprisonment yet, but there's opposition to the gospel, and it's not far away. Um, and what's, what's ironic, I think, I, I'm always told I use the word ironic wrong, so we'll see if Jonathan audits me here. Um, <laughs> but what's ironic is, is our culture's aim is to not discriminate against anyone 
and yet it openly discriminates against Christians, especially those who speak a clear gospel message. And so this is actually the point in my notes where I want Shag to give us a two-minute explanation of what he's dealing with in the workplace right now, um, because I think it informs us a lot of what's coming, and, and he's doing a phenomenal job of just standing up for the gospel. So can you give me two to three minutes or whatever? Sure. You can stand up. You, come here, you'll get recorded. <laughs> So it's kind of weird because I, I feel like what I'm experiencing is something that other people are experiencing in conversations with people at Intel and conversations with people in, in the workforce. So I'm, I'm a teacher, right? Uh, I teach in uh, Chandler Unified School District. And um, one of the, what Matt's asking me to talk about here is um, there's a like teacher training program that's been adopted by our school district and implemented over the last couple of years. Um, that is rooted in uh, two philosophies, uh, and maybe this might sound familiar to some of you as you know going through your HR trainings, right? Uh, but it's rooted in uh, postmodernism, which is which is uh, has rejected uh, the idea of absolute truth, um, and it's also rooted in uh, critical race theory, which is uh, the idea that. Uh, white supremacy is real, active, and inherent uh, to whiteness. So in other words, all white people are intrinsically inherently racist and will actively move to promote that, uh, even, even, <laughs> even if it's subconsciously. Uh, I didn't know if you knew this, but you could be subconsciously a racist, apparently. Um, so anyway, the, this is, these are the trainings. The trainings are meant to be, uh, you know, an inclusivity thing. Um, it's it's a, meant to support, um, you know, like cultural relevance. But uh, in reality, it's it's an attack on truth and it's an attack on uh, our culture, uh, and our, our like American. It's an attack on the individual. Absolutely. An attack on the individual. Um, and and this is just counter to to, to scripture, but it's also, but it's also. Um, like the things that are the, the things that are most insidious about these programs is the attack on truth. Uh, Christianity is rooted in truth, and if uh, truth is wrong, then Christianity is wrong. Uh, Christianity is is hateful because it's rooted in truth. That's that's the message. Uh, that's. <laughs> That is literally what it says on some of the training information that gets that gets passed out. Uh, that Christianity is oppressive is oppressive and uh, must be resisted. So, like I know that, like talking to people at Intel, like they have some of that same stuff in their sensitivity trainings that they go to, and I know that's that it, it's becoming more and more and more part of our culture. Um, and uh, there are. Like it, like in, there are people at my school uh, that are believers, and uh, we've decided to take a stand against this, and it's been it's been pretty um, pretty hectic. But there are people 
there are people in our there are believers in our community. There are believers in our in our state representation uh, in the, our state government that uh, that are willing to stand for truth against this kind of stuff. So um, the the I guess the message is to to be ready. You know, it, it's coming. So and in many ways, it's already here. Yeah, it is. That's yeah. I just as I was thinking about this and thinking about how our culture is already discriminating against Christians, a shot of a screenshot of the training material that Shag showed me, where it literally in one column says Christianity is oppressive, and pluralism is the only way, and is the way that we need to drive everyone to. Um, it's here. <clears throat> yeah. How does a Christian man shepherd his family when his children spend 40 hours a week with that kind of indoctrination and discipline over them? Um, yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. There are so being disciplined. Yeah. Our children will be disciplined in that view. Yeah. There are um, a lot of answers to that question. And they can range, uh, one sec, Mark, they, they can range from um, pull your kids out of it, and many parents have chosen that path. They can range from just preach the gospel to your kids and help them recognize that they're in an opposite, they're in a world that's opposing that truth, and, and hope that they're mature enough to recognize the difference and to trust what their parents are teaching them over what they're learning in the world. Um, and there's probably not a right answer. Can, can I add on to that, Matt? Yeah. So lots, lots of parents, and, and I'm not, I'm a public school teacher. I'm not telling you how to raise your kids, okay? But, you know, lots of parents have pulled their kids out, but that just leaves the public schools darker. You know, I, I, I've been so encouraged to see Christian teachers stand up and say, this is wrong in public. And, like, we like, we live in a place where we can stand up and say this is wrong without fear of government reprisal. I, like, I would encourage you to, to stand firm. Yeah, if I can push back just a little bit on that. I'm not saying that, that Christians shouldn't be teachers in public schools. Yeah. Because we can actually bring light to that. But here we are talking about our children in MGM not being believers. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't talk about and, them bringing light to oh the yeah, school totally. system. And and I think that's a um, that's why I don't know that there's a one size fits all. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an option of how did how does this work well with our family and how does our family interact with that? Yeah. Um, our kids are in public schools and um, Jenna has is a stay at home mom and has spent a lot of time in our kids' classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is an avenue that we've used and chosen to do, but we've we've done that very intentionally, recognizing the negative repercussions of that, and fighting against those negative repercussions. And it is, it 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 is not. We don't we don't not homeschool our kids. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to say that without two negatives, but we do homeschool. We chose, yeah. Well, <laughs> but we don't. <laughs> we've chosen we've chosen to to put our kids in a public school not because 
we didn't have time to homeschool. I, it's taken a lot of time and effort and decision to have our kids in the public school system. And, and we'll find out in maybe 10 years whether that was the right decision or not. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's the type of decision I don't know that I can know before I make it. I just have to trust God with it. Uh-huh. I, I think <coughs> that as men and leaders of our homes, there is no like autopilot. Right? Some people choose to homeschool and they recognize that is all the effort that goes into that. Some people choose to put their kids in public school. Yeah. That doesn't get you off the hook. Right. No, um, it's it, there, There's a lot of work that, if it's not being done, should be done because you've got to de, you know, you've got to debrief and find out and ask lots and lots of good questions and correct wrong thinking. Know your teachers. You, you know, know your teachers. teachers. You an active parent in the classroom. And and what's interesting is, like every single one of my kids have had the same teachers in a few of their classes that were believers, that are believers. And, and there's some real benefit to that. Like one of the things Shag does in his class is he asks questions and when he has a believer in the class, he's allowed to share the gospel as long as he gets a direct question about it. So when he has believing kids in the class, they like ask questions so he can preach the gospel, um, which is pretty rad. Tell us again about the gospel, Mr. And yet... What's interesting, I was talking to, to Tom Angstead about this several years ago, is um, Eden, my daughter, who's 12 now, I think it was third grade, she got to be pretty good friends with a girl in her class. And the girl in her class had lesbian moms who were divorced, and then one of them, they both were in other lesbian relationships. So she had like four moms. Um, and so I didn't think when I chose to put my kids in the public school, that when they were eight, I was gonna have to teach them what a lesbian relationship was and how that was going to look and why that's opposed to God's plan. And then teach her how to interact with someone who's her peer around that and around the gospel in a way that is both offensive and not offensive. Um, And so um, I didn't see that coming (laughs) when we said, yeah, let's put our kids in public school. I think I would now because it's a little bit more that way than it even was 10 years ago when we made that call. Um, And so Annalise has been Eden's friend for whatever that is, five years. And when she was first asked to go over to her house to spend the night, we're like, yeah, no. And Jenna over the last five years has built up a really strong relationship with one or two of those moms. Um, And They've since, they've all broken up now. Um, I think that's part of that. Like one of them now has a guy friend. I I can't keep track. (laughs) But, and our heart breaks for Annalise. And we have Annalise in our house all the time. And and we have an opportunity to bring the gospel to this girl who is just so lost. Um, I didn't see that coming. Um, And and Eden's two best friends are, are Annalise and Amaya. And both of them live in homes that are strongly opposed to the gospel. And both of them, when evolution is taught, turn to Eden and go, I'm so annoyed that they're teaching this because you don't believe this. And they're teaching it as if it's true. And that's not fair. And these are 10, 12-year-old girls recognizing the culture around them. Being in that, I mean, raised by lesbians, I'm guessing you're probably not hearing biblical truth in, home, in the home. And yet they're, they're soft-hearted to my daughter 
and the opposition she's receiving from the from those classrooms. And so there are some, it's been very sweet, but if I'm not incredibly involved in those lives, um, there could be some very wrong thinking as well. And so, um, yeah. Just to your point about, you know, how do we shepherd, right? It doesn't matter if they're in homeschool, if they're in public school, if they're in private uh, Christian school, and we shepherd them with God's word. And because because they need to know the truth, they, they need to be able to to, to 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 filter out whether it's their 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 homeschool curriculum or their private Christian school curriculum. Uh, yeah. To 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 know, we, we want to shepherd them with the greatness of God and the greatness of His Word, so that they'll run to His Word. My, con my concern in, in that regard is the numbers are just not speaking to that. Mm -hmm. The numbers are that, that children post high school leave the church and leave the faith. Right. And there's just, you know, what are you going to do? That because, because they're being disciplined by a worldview that is antithetical to ours. Mm -hmm. Would we send missionaries? into an Islamic nation and then have those missionaries send their children to Islamic school? No, those missionaries would, would teach their children. And they would teach their children at home. They wouldn't send them to an Islamic school. And if, if there was no public school in your neighborhood, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't send your kids to a Catholic school. I would... Yeah, there's lots of hands going up. <laughs> Go for it. First, I'm not a parent at the same time, but I also, when I look at my own life and how God's, God saved me, it, it wasn't through a Christian home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so I've seen, you know, I've seen both homeschool kids go in a different direction the outside of the faith and, and live life completely contrary to the gospel. And I've seen the other aspect of people that might have sent their kids to public school and uh, they realize that they're lost in that setting. I'm not sitting here saying advocating either or, but it's hard to make that distinction because it is the gospel that saves. It is the preaching of the gospel that saves sinners. And that's where I believe what you're saying, like praying and trusting God, that is the gospel that saves. Yes, we have these disciplines in how we love our kids and love our family. But you know, you know, when you I'm, I'm asking the question because I think that we all have to wrestle with yeah, it. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, and I think we have to wrestle it with it at the at the level in which we're looking at the hard facts of the reality, which is the hard facts are our children are leaving the faith. Well, well, uh, I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not saying our children, but I'm saying. Let me, let me, answer, let me answer your question yeah. because sure. I, I'm 20, uh, 20 years in front of you guys. Sure, sure. My kids, I mean, we're, we're, we've, we've spent the devotions, we've spent the things. And when they were in grammar school, there was a sex education thing that came out. And we were like, no, not on my watch. This is not happening. So. We chose to go to a Christian school, so we sent the kids to the Christian school. 
that that was a good experience, but one of my children, it was a very bad experience when they went to high school because of being Valley Christian. Valley Christian was good, don't get me wrong. It was just it was a bad experience. Mm -hmm. So when it comes down to the choice the child gets, it, it, it's really hard for us to understand because like Eric, uh, that's your name, right? Mm -hmm. What he's saying is so true when it talks about the, the, the praying for them, teaching them, being with them because the thing that, you know, I've taught my kids and everything else is like, just remember, I'm teaching you God's word, <coughs> I'm showing you God's word, this is what it is, but just remember, when you stand before Jesus, you're not, I'm not answering for you, mom's not answering for you, you are answering for yourself, and you have to understand that, you know, I'm giving you every tool that I can give you, but I can't lead you across the line, that's, that's between you and the Lord, and you have to make that transition. And when you realize from our perspective as parents how hard it is to watch them make a bad choice. My kids have made some bad choices, you know, and those, those are very hard things to do, and you can't protect them. But the one thing that you really have to get through to them, and, and this comes from exactly showing them God's word, you know, going with them, and but they have to understand, you know, you personally have to make that decision. You personally have to make that decision when you're in high school. You personally, when you go to that college property teaching your craft, you know, it's like that's a decision you are personally making because just remember, me, like you, we're all the same. God has no spiritual grandchildren. So like, you're the one making that choice and that's why it's very important as we teach them because there's one thing that, because uh, my, my brother's a little older and you know, We've had our challenges as kids, but it comes down to if you could give, if God said, okay, I'm going to give you one wish, you name the wish, I'm going to grant it, but you only get one. So you go, okay, what's my wish? You back the train up, you back the train up, and here really comes the bottom line. If I only get one wish, I want my child to be saved. I want, I want the Lord to take them all on me. I want him to have that relationship because, you know, I want you to have, I want you to be good in school. I want you to be, no, it really comes down to the basic thing in life. It's like, it's your decision and I'm giving you everything to let you know. You have to make this decision. It's not me. I'm not going to hold your hand when Jesus is talking to you. I wish I could, but you can't. No, I'm just talking about how we faithfully execute yeah. Deuteronomy 6. I actually think this this is probably because I'm I'm yeah. literally at the thirty to thirty five minute point in my notes. Like yeah. it says thirty to thirty five minutes. So, um, so no, I think this is a good discussion to have. Um, and I'd say let's have it during discussion groups. But I'm at the thirty minute point in my notes. So, um, but if if you want, let's follow up afterwards, Ken. Um, I want to keep moving. So sorry to cut you off, Dustin. I know you had your hand up. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you share afterwards. <laughs> um, okay, so we're, we're on sections about Paul's character. And the seventh point here is that character like Paul's must flow from truth and pure motives. Uh, verse 3 says, For our exhortation does not come from error, or impurity, or by way of deceit. 
Paul has been speaking of the character of the Thessalonians as well as himself and his traveling companions. But before he transitions into a broader discussion of the motivation behind the message, he addresses two things that must not be true about biblical gospel ministry. Biblical gospel ministry must not come from error or impurity, and it must not come by way of deceit. Um, in error here, it relates to a wrong position in biblical manners or holding positions that are contrary to Scripture. And impurity relates to an impurity of motives, a desire to gain in a way that is sinful. And then deceit relates to trickery. In deceit, it's as if a person is presented the gospel, advertising all of the fun and games and none of the hardship. So if you're interested in a biblical gospel ministry, um, you need to discard anything that compromises the integrity of the gospel. And you need to discard anything that might put a carrot in front of somebody. The gospel message is a beautiful message, and it doesn't need to be enhanced by external things. Uh, it's, it, it's a temptation to compromise the gospel, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. Um, and it's only compromised when maybe even a well-meaning brother tries to share in a way that avoids the offense, the offensiveness of the message. We, we want to preach a gospel message that offends because it tells us that we're not on our thrones, but God's on the throne. Um, and so we want to we want our gospel message to be an offensive message. And, and that, that's really hard to do. Um, it's really hard to get over that hump. Um, which leads us to the next character trait. Because Paul's character was only concerned with God's approval. If I'm preaching a soft gospel message, I'm probably worried about the approval of the guy across the table from me. If I'm preaching a hard gospel message that talks about what this person across the table to me is with respect to God, and that is a sinner who hates God and who only wants things for himself, um, that gospel message will be offensive and will be approved by God. And so in verses 4 through 6, that's where Paul talks about this. Paul makes some statements about himself. He calls himself approved by God there in verse 4. Um, he says that he was not pleasing men. Um, and he says that God is his witness and that he was an apostle of Christ. Paul viewed his gospel ministry as something that has been tested and refined so that he can be entrusted with the gospel. We need to labor in gospel ministry with a desire to please God and God alone. We, we need to have a gospel message to our kids, a gospel message to our co-workers that is pleasing to God and God alone. We need to have it be free from greed. He talks about that in verse 5. He says, we didn't have a pretext for greed. Um, he wasn't seeking glory from men with his gospel message. There might be some preachers, in quotations, on the television that are seeking to prove glory from men and not from God. Um, we're not looking for glory from men, and neither did Paul. Um, and because 
in our mixed condition as we've been talking about, sin is crouching at our door. Even on our best days, sin is crouching at our door. And so our own flesh will lie to us and tell us that we're doing a good job. But we need to look at what our gospel message really is preaching. So if you're being used by the Lord, consider, am I concerned first and foremost for God's approval in my gospel presentation and in my life? Um, I know that one was convicting for me. I know a lot of times I, I use under the pretense of I want a message that can be heard. And so I want to keep this conversation going. I avoid the difficulty of the conversation. I avoid putting the person across the table from me and where their life sits according to God on full display. Um, because I, and that's just not helpful, especially, I mean, Paul had some urgency, right? Like he was going from town to town as fast as he could. And so he didn't have time to go build this relationship over a year before you preached a gospel message. And lives were changed in ways that we've never seen. And part of that was the Holy Spirit was starting the church and the Holy Spirit was moving forth in ways that he'd never moved before. And part of it was, Paul was very upfront about the gospel message uh, amidst a lot of opposition. He went into synagogues telling them that they killed the Messiah. Um, that was a little different message than I think we've ever preached. Um, and so we need to be um, have the courage and not sugarcoat things. Um, and yet... Paul's character, he knew how to be gentle. Um, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. At different points in Paul's ministry, he did head to admonish church leaders. Um, you don't read that many of his epistles without recognizing that he admonished church leaders. Um, he rebuked the believers um, in the book of Galatia, Galatians at the church in Galatia. Um, and he encouraged faint-hearted believers. Uh, at the end of this chapter, we talked a little bit about it. Encourage one another with these things. He knew how to come to people who were scared about what was happening when people died and encouraged them and brought faint-hearted people um, of some very comforting truth. And you don't do that without being gentle. Um, what do you think happens if you rebuke a faint-hearted person, it's devastating to them. Because a faint-hearted person is someone who is striving hard and not able to do what they know they need to do. And they're exhausted, and they're trying to figure out how to, how to move forward in this life, and you come back and say, you're doing it wrong. That's devastating to a faint-hearted person. Um, you need to be able to know recognize where a person is and know what kind of truth you bring to that person to encourage them with the gospel. And that takes gentleness. Um, that's not an easy task. I think when I see it's, it's quick and easy to rebuke someone that's doing, that's living a life and opposed to God and not recognize the why they're doing that and the, how that truth is helpful. And so so there's, there's kind of a dichotomy there, right? So if we talk about we want to bring an offensive gospel to people, um, but we want to do it in a gentle way, you've got to know how to do that. You've got to be able to read the situation and say, you know what you need? You need a Savior. 
like all of this stuff that's hurting you that makes this life hard, that can be saved. You can be saved from that for all of eternity. That is a sweet, gentle message spoken the right way. And there could be a situation where a person is so opposed to God that that's not going to have any room. And you need to be able to rebuke them in that moment. And you need to know what the differences those are, and you need to know how to do that well. Um, and that's a man who has a character like Paul's. Um, and thankfully, we have the Holy Spirit in us to help us with that. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one that changes those hearts, and we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and recognize how we interact um, with other people through that. Um, another character uh, observation of a character trait of Paul's is that he was able to blend gospel proclamation with selfless love. Um, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. It takes me more than three weeks to tell someone that they're very dear to me. Um, and yet, he just had a love for people. Um, and, and it didn't just come in words. It came in power in the Holy Spirit. And he did that, and he worked day and night, and he interacted with them because he loved these people. And, and there were probably those hard people that are hard to be around in that group um, that you sometimes just have to like give yourself a pep talk to go interact with. And he loved those people, and he wanted to be with those people. Um, you've, yeah, I'll skip that. So, <laughs> um, so if you're being used by the Lord in any way, consider this. Is my gospel message accompanied by personal care for others? Do I pray for those I minister to? Do I know the life circumstances of those I minister to? Do I ask, how are you doing? <clears throat> really, how are you doing? And do I want to know that answer? Um, and then do I act on what that answer is? Most people, if you ask, how are you doing? Their answer is fine. Um, Jenna knows that I have like three answers to that. Like, great, fine, I'm doing all right. And she knows that those three answers mean three very different things. And she knows the follow-up question to which of those three answers. We've been living together for 21 years. She might have figured out my short, my shorthand for how I'm doing. Um, we need to know the answers to the people that we're around and know how to ask those follow-up questions so that we can really love them. Um, and a great question, I think Eric asked this question a lot. Maybe he's heard this lesson before. But a great question is, how is your heart? How is your heart doing? Um, that's, that, that forces the an person answering that question to dig a little deeper right off the bat. Um, and, and it forces them to examine, how is my heart doing? Um, some of us are moving so fast, we don't even look there and think about it. And those are just those are great ways to be able to show love for the people that we're interacting with.
the last characteristic of Paul's is it requires excellent behavior. Um, to have character like Paul's, we must have excellent behavior. Your witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting, encouraging, and imploring each one of you as a father with his own child, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul reminds them of his godly behavior while he was amongst them. He was devout, he was upright, and he was blameless. Paul's life and actions validated his message. Can you imagine what would have happened with his gospel message if he was not upright, blameless, and devout? Do you think the same life change would have happened if they saw this guy who was debaucherous come and tell them, let me tell you about my Savior? Absolutely not. Um, and so, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. Yeah, that, that, that's not it. <laughs> it's preach the gospel and let your life validate those words. Um, a life changed by the gospel is validated. There's validation for a gospel preached. Um, and we want, if, if we're preaching a gospel of repentance, we need to live a gospel of repentance. And then we need to see those that we're interacting with walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Uh, Paul pursued godly behavior in the saints in Thessalonica the very same way that a fa loving father would pursue his own son. So the tack on message that I want to just really be brief about is I do want to talk and follow up that with some deacon qualifications. Josh, did you have something? No. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the deacon qualifications. I want to put these in front of you guys for the first time in this setting because I think this is something we all should be striving for as Christians. Um, and I think that these these validate a lot of our interaction. If you look at these qualifications, and we're just going to look at, at seven qualifications from 1 Timothy. So if you want to turn to 1 Timothy 3, um, and, and we're going to talk about these. There is a, um, there's actually an entire session dedicated to qualifications. It's one of the disciplines. And because I want to insert another lesson in build instead of that one, we're just going to do that lesson in 15-minute chunks throughout the, the semester or whatever we call this year. Um, and so this is the, the five to ten minute intro. Um, so read with me in First Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons. These are, these are um, servant leaders within the church. The prototypical deacon came in Acts 7 uh, when they were raised up to, um, to wait tables and serve. Um, 6, Acts 6, as um, Eric just pointed out to me. And so, uh, and and then this is this is Paul talking about what a deacon should look like. And so, deacons likewise must be men of dignity. One, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, um, and not fond of sordid gain. But holding to the ministry of the faith with a clear conscience, these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, as if they are beyond reproach. 
Women must likewise be dignity, dignified, not malicious gossip, but temperate and faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as a deacon obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, I just want, I, I want to walk through this list quickly. So there's seven. The first one is a man of dignity. A man of dignity means that you possess a serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. This serious bearing needs to increase inwardly in your thought life so that it may greatly influence your outward character as well. A man of dignity has spirit, is spirit-filled in this dignity, is appealing and winsome to others, and isn't marked by flip silliness or flippant attitudes. Um, I actually went through the deacon process, I think, three times in my life here at Grace Bible Church. And the first time, this was brought up to me. Um, one of the elders at the time, he's still an elder, um, said, Matt, I'm concerned that you're a man of dignity. I, I don't know if you've interacted with me much. I tend to joke a lot. Um, and, and the ability to recognize when the right time to joke and when the wrong time to joke it wasn't there. Um, and it, it, was, it was humbling. I've thought about it a lot. Every time I read this, I think, how am I growing as a man of dignity? Um, but if you're a man of dignity, people should not be tempted to think lightly of God because of how you portray yourself. Um, you should not make light of serious matters. Um, we need to strive to be men of dignity. We need to recognize when is the right time for humor and when is the right time for seriousness. And, and not just recognize it, but maybe act out correctly in those times. Um, Paul was a man of dignity. Paul knew it. And Paul had sarcasm, so there you go. Um, not double-tongued means, to not, quite literally, not having two tongues. Um, to be this kind of man, we need to be intimately aware of our presence in every conversation. Uh, it, if we're interacting with people, sometimes it's just lazy speech that causes us to, to be double-tongued. We might just not be saying what we know we need to be saying because we're agreeing with people that we know we don't agree with, and it's, it's just lazy speech. Um, sometimes we're, we're frankly liars. Um, and so we need to recognize where the word, what words are coming out of our, our mouths and understand um, if we're being, if we're men of integrity with that. Uh, not addicted to much wine. This is that our thoughts and habits must not repeatedly turn to alcohol or anything in a simple way that adversely affects our thought, life, and judgment. A person addicted to wine is one who has become preoccupied with any drink food or medicine in such a way that diminishes God's greatness and glory in our lives. Imagine how the gospel, imagine for a second the validity of your gospel proclamation if you're known as being one that numbs their existence with alcohol. How much power does that gospel message have? A lot of people turn to alcohol because they're trying to numb what's happening in their lives. And 
And if we're doing that, we're not turning to God in, in our troubles. We're turning to something that this world, frankly, can't provide. Um, and so we need to position ourselves towards alcohol, not just in a way that avoids that, but in a way that avoids the perception of that, because we're supposed to be above reproach in all of these things. So I don't just want to not be a person that is addicted to wine. I want to be a person that people don't say, oh, Matt, that guy, that guy loves to drink. Um, I don't want that. Number four, not fond of sordid gain. I do not love gain. I do not love gaining wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. Um, I was talking about someone I know and their and, and their relationship towards their business, and um, the way I described it is is they they approach business the same way many of us approach the speed limit. That I will pay my ticket when I get caught but I'm not going to worry about it um, unless I get caught. Uh, that person is fond of sordid gain. That person, if you're looking on the outside, if you're on the outside looking in and you say, oh, well, I know the way that man runs his business and, and he, he walks probably pr- across the line quite a bit, um, it, it diminishes the power of his gospel message. And the, the person I know is a believer and his gospel message is diminished because of the way he runs his business. Um, we, can't, we can't be fond of sort of gain or, or gain an accusation towards that. Uh, holds to the ministry of the faith with a clear conscience. This person has a strong allegiance and obedi- obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ personally. The life of this man and his love of the gospel does not cause him to question the gospel's impact on his life. And it doesn't cause others to question the gospel's impact. The clear conscience is his life has been transformed. He is a repentant believer who has transformed, who's changed from his old ways to his new. Um, Husband of one life, one woman man. This person is satisfied to love only one woman. Uh, and, And this doesn't, for single people, if God grants you marriage, there is one woman in your life. You just might not know her yet. Um, and so you need to have your position towards women be as if you don't know who that woman is. Um, it, it might not be the person you're dating. It might not even be the person you're engaged to. And so you need to approach the women in your life as if you don't know your wife. And men that are married... What is your position towards media? To, and what does that inform you about how much you singularly are satisfied by one woman? Um, this person has a restrained and is disciplined in his romantic, sexual, and emotional thoughts and desires. A one-woman man is not merely a man who has only been married once. That's pretty easy to do. Um, or at least is only married to one woman at a time. That's pretty easy to do. <laughs> one woman man has singular thoughts for one woman and is disciplined, and that takes discipline. Um, this is not an undisciplined thing. Actually, when I, um, when I did that same deacon application, a different elder, I, I said, um, frankly, I don't struggle with porn. I don't struggle with desires for other women. And one of the elders 
pointed that out and said, I don't believe you. Talk to me about why. And I said, because Jenna will kill me if I do. <laughs> and, and there was a time early in our relationship before we, we were married where I did. And, and Jenna broke up with me. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. Um, and so, so I did everything in my power to discipline myself away from porn and away from any thoughts and, and desires for anyone other than my wife. And my, in my case, my marriage is at stake. Um, and, and this elder said, yeah, my wife too. Uh, like, and there are some of you whose wives are incredibly gracious with you as you seek to be a one-woman man, and that is great. And that is a luxury I don't have, and so I have to be incredibly disciplined. Um, I would encourage you to approach your wife and your relationship with your wife in a way that your marriage is at stake. Because it's it's d very destructive, and when you look at the marriage relationship, and I think this is a whole other lesson, so I really should shut up. But if you look at the marriage relationship, um, it's paralleled to Christ's love for the church. And and if we understand Christ's love for the church, and yet we have eyes that wander, um, we don't understand Christ's love for the church. And so we need to have eyes that are only fixed on our wives. The last one is a good manager of his children and his household. As a good manager of my children and household, this means that I am providing direct and ongoing oversight of my ch children and the events of my family. Um, this man is eager to stand before and among his children grace graciously as the head of his household. I know a lot of households that are run by the wives, um, and the man shows up when he's supposed to be there. And, and I know a lot of times... Um, I walk out of work, and the last thing I want to do is go step into a home and lead again. Like, I um, have to lead a bunch of knuckleheads at work, and now I get to go home and, and lead people that love me. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I just want to go home and, and not. Um, and we need to be ready, willing, able, and of the m mindset to not be disconnected from our homes. Um, to not be on autopilot when we get home, um, to seek to see where our wives, kids are burdened because we were gone all day, and to help alleviate those burdens. Um, that's a good manager of his household. So that's all I've got. You guys have 20 to 30 minutes for discussion groups.